Good morning. Uh, my name is Phil Pearson, and I'm the ministry director here at St. Pete's. Um, and I'll start by praying one more time. Uh, Father God, we give thanks um, that you're a God that's here, that shows up in surprising places and ways. Um, and we ask that, like Jacob, we have eyes to see you, to see your presence in our life, in our city, in our, in our world. And we give thanks for those moments. Um, and I ask that you speak through my words today, um, that we would see you and encounter you in these ways, Lord, in your name. Amen. Um, I have a question to begin and it's a rhetorical question because you don't have a microphone. So, but I'm the one with the mic. Have you, or what is the weirdest encounter that you've had in Vancouver? And not a bad weird, but a good weird. I, I think we've all probably been on the 16 heading down to Granville and, you know, things have happened. It's the bus. But I mean a good encounter that you think back on fondly. I had one a little bit before the pandemic. I was taking the SkyTrain uh, to downtown, I think, to return some pants or something like that. And I got off the train, was standing on the terminal landing thing, um, and I noticed out of the corner of my eye this older woman staring at me from the train. And I am awkward in crowds, and so I looked over and noticed that she was staring at me. And it's that moment of being like, how long has she been staring? And maybe like, maybe I was wrong, so I'm just gonna look again. So I looked again, and then she gave me this like awkward wave, and I was just like, okay, weird. And then the ding of like the, the bus, the train goes, the doors begin to close, and right before the train starts rolling, this random older woman blew me a kiss. <laughs> and I was just like flabbergasted. I probably went a little rosy in my cheeks and was like, what? And so I did the, the only thing that a rational human person would do in that moment. The train began to roll, and I took off in a full sprint, chasing the train, over the top, banging on the window, shouting, don't leave me. And people are on the subway station. And this woman started laughing, and I laughed. And, and I think back on that all the time. <laughs> Anytime I'm having a bad day, I just think, this woman blew me a kiss. And it brightened my day, my week, my life. And I hope that you can have a good moment like that, not the classic Vancouver awkward moments. <laughs> That's the story. I, I, there's no great ending. I did not know if she was an angel or anything like that, but just this <laughs> joyful encounter. Over the next several weeks here at St. Pete's, what we're going to do is we're going to pause on our Luke series, and we're going to explore a number of stories and encounters with God, with the Creator, with the Divine, and they're going to come up in the strangest of places in pillars of fire, in the middle of the desert, in strangers on the road, and in dreams. And my hope is that as we explore these different encounters, they, like all stories, will hold out an invitation for us, an invitation to experience encounters with God ourselves. Because in the Christian faith, we believe something crazy. We believe God shows up, that he speaks, that he's not far off. And so each week we're going to look at these different and surprising encounters with goodness. How does that sound? Good. Okay. I do ask response questions. Our first question or our first encounter begins on the side of the road late in the evening at a place with no name to a man who has no religious acumen, no wealth, no merit, no good status. He's on the run for his life for sins that he committed, for crimes he committed. He's a charlatan, a liar, and a cheater. And yet, God is going to show up in a very interesting way. 
and is going to change this person's course of life. This person, of course, is Jacob, as we were introduced in the text. And Jacob, I want to provide some backstory on before we actually talk about this encounter. Jacob is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. And both Isaac and Abraham have received words and promises from God that will be repeated to Jacob in the story. He is the younger fraternal twin brother to Esau. And the first time we learn about Jacob and Esau is in their birth story. Um, the best time to learn about anyone. The Genesis 25, verse 24 to 25 says this. When the time came for her to give birth, Rebecca, to give birth, there were twins in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a garment. So they named him Esau. I mean, great name. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping on Esau's foot. So he was named Jacob, obviously. Jacob, of course, translates to the one who seizes or the one who grabs. And honestly, I wish we did a better job naming people. Um, because, we, like, wait a couple weeks till your kid does something really interesting and then name them that. Because for me, my name, does anyone know what my name means? My name means lover of horses. I Googled it for you. If you don't believe me, I check regularly to see if it changed. Because nothing about my personality matches with that name whatsoever. Like, my parents should have named impulsive or overly energetic or awkward among crowds or one who has odd encounters on the street. Anything would have been better than lover of horses. But I'm stuck with this. They could have, they could have done a better job. So this is just an encouragement to those soon to have kids. Just wait like a week or two, see if your kid does something interesting, and then name them whatever that is. I really look forward to that. But the author is doing something very intentional when he brings up Jacob and Esau. First of all, Esau's hairy. That's, that's just what they named him. He's red and hairy. But Jacob, right from the get-go, the authors are picking up something. Jacob is one who grasps, one who seizes, one who tries to grab what is not his. And the through line of the entire story of Jacob through the story of Genesis is he's constantly trying to take what's not his. He's trying, constantly trying to seize what's his brother's, what's his father's, those things that are not his. And he keeps grabbing onto things that aren't his. And we get this very interesting picture of a bit of a conniving, a bit of a cheating figure. And it comes up again in this initial story of Esau and his brother. Esau, his older brother, is going out hunting. He goes into the woods or the forest or something, and he's hunting. And while he come, once he comes back, he comes to his brother who's just at home cooking a stew, and he says, Jacob, I'm famished. I'm going to die. Give me some of your stew. And Jacob goes, I'll give you some stew, but sell me your birthright first. Exactly. <laughs> You may not know what a birthright is, but, it, but in this time, the firstborn had the right to the whole family estate. And so when Jacob's saying, like, sell me your birthright, he's like, tell me that I get everything and you get nothing. And Esau does it, which is more crazy. And he's like, fine, I swear to you my birthright for this bowl of stew. It's crazy. Like, we, this is not a biblical story that you would think of. This is Loki and Thor going at it again and again. And then the next major story, again, Jacob comes up as this, this swindler, this charlatan. Their father is dying. He's blind. He's on his deathbed. And his father says, Esau, I want to give you my deathbed blessing, this very important moment for him. And he says, but first, and I love this, he says, go get tasty food like I like. So Esau goes out hunting, but 
Jacob's mother heard um, Isaac say this to Esau. So she says to Jacob, go put on goat skin on your neck and your arm because your brother Esau is so hairy and bring your father food and then he will give you his deathbed blessing. And that's exactly what Jacob does. He dresses up like his brother and his father says, you don't sound like Esau, but you smell and feel like him. And so he gives him this deathbed blessing. And then Esau comes home after Jacob has received this blessing. And his father goes, why are you here again? I already gave you the blessing. And then the jig is up. Jacob, the one who grasped the liar, the swindler, has taken another sacred right of his brothers. And so Esau says to him, once our father is dead and I am done mourning, I'm going to kill you. And so Rebecca, Jacob's mother, the only one who really likes him in the story, says, run. Like, get out, run for your life, go find a wife, and then wait for your brother to calm down of not wanting to kill you. Classic biblical story. And this is where our story picks up. It comes after learning that Jacob is a liar, a cheater, a charlatan, and a swindler. Nothing in this story paints Jacob to be a role model, a good person, or even a man of God. And then we come to this wild encounter on the side of the road as night falls. I'm going to read it one more time. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped there for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones here, he put it under his head and laid down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it, We'll come back to that. Stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. And I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promise. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is none other, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now I mentioned at the beginning that this series that we're going to be doing is going to be focusing on two parts. First, it's going to focus on the people who receive the encounters. And second, it's going to focus on the encounter of goodness and why God, how God chooses to reveal himself. So first, let's talk about Jacob a little bit longer. Because Jacob offers us a great insight about the kind of people that God chooses to bless. The first part of the text reveals something utterly wild and extremely significant. God chooses to reveal himself to people that aren't even looking. He's on the side of the road. He's running for his life. He's just going to sleep, and then he has this dream. He's not on a pilgrimage. He's not on a silent retreat. He's not praying to God or worshiping God. He's not doing good deeds. He is no one to be admired. And then God shows up. And I want to name something here for a moment. This is really frustrating because if you were like me and handed a more moralistic view of the world and of God and of religion, 
this completely shatters that because there are many of us who have been told that if we do all the right things, say the right things, act the right way, pray the right prayers, God will show up, right? Is it just me that was told this? Because this is what I expected when I was younger. I thought if I did enough, God would reciprocate. But then we get this story and we're like, really, God? This is the kind of person you reveal yourself? Someone who's not even looking, someone who's not even paying attention? And I would say, though this is frustrating, this is also liberating. Because the surprising goodness of God is that he chooses up regardless of if, or he shows up regardless of if a person deserves it. Jacob has done nothing to earn an encounter. And yet, it's another gift to him. And this is a sense of relief to me because I realize that in the back of my head, in my heart, I always think I'm not quite good enough. There's more I could do. There's more I could say, more prayers I could read or pray, more books I could read, more acts I could do. And this story is a bomb, a soothing bomb in the midst of guilt and shame. Because are you tired of trying to get God to notice you? Stop. He already has, is what this story whispers us to whispers to us. And I love that. I think it's beautiful. So, so let's talk about this dream. You may have heard this story called Jacob's Ladder before or been introduced it with the Mennonite toy that you flip back and forth in the... Is any, Mennonites here? Okay, never mind. Um, anyways, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it used to be called Jacob's Ladder. It was a poor translation. It should be stairway because a ladder implies like one person going up and down, but stairway is wide. It... Um, There's a link here in the end of the text when uh, Jacob says, this is the gate of heaven. And that's actually a link back to the story of Babel. Because Babel and Babylon was referred to as the gate of heaven, or the, the stairway to heaven, essentially. And so what we are meant to see is this large, wide, grand staircase, much like a Mayan ziggurat climbing up far into the sky. And it rests on earth. It's heaven coming down, not the other way up. A a quick aside here about heaven. To our modern ears, heaven may be a weird thing where we think that heaven is the place that we go when we die. And and of course, there's elements to that that I don't have time to get into today in a a full theological understanding. But Jacob, to, to him, heaven was not simply the place you go when you die, but a cosmological worldview, an understanding that it is the place of the spirit, of the gods, much more like Mount Olympus, a place where spiritual beings existed, but it was separate than earth. It was above earth. And so when Jacob sees this staircase, what he's seeing is a bridge. Heaven, God's realm, realm of the spirit, enters here into the realm of earth. It touches down, it overlaps. And then Jacob sees angels ascending and descending. These are messengers of God, and they shouldn't be thought of as like people in white robes. Like they are actually beings that throughout all scripture kind of inspire fear and awe from these people, something completely and utterly understandable. And Jacob sees them moving up and down, and he sees in this moment a deep connection between heaven and earth. My friend Brad, um, he's a pastor back in Ontario, and whenever his kids say, where is heaven, he goes with the Celtic understanding. He says, heaven is three feet up, invisible, and right in front of you. Three feet up, right off the ground, right in front of you, but invisible. 
And here, for a moment, Jacob experiences what many call a thin place experience, where the veil between those two realities becomes thin and almost touchable. And the text says that God stood above it. And in your translations in the Bibles, you might see a little footnote linked down and that there's actually a lot of disagreement on what the term is because it might be above it, above him, or beside him. And there's this ambiguity in the language, and we've gone with above it, kind of understanding that God is at the top of the stairs over the world, but then he speaks to Jacob. Jacob hears him, this closeness, this intimacy. He promises Jacob, much like his father Abraham and Isaac, that he will bless him, and that through blessing him and his offspring, that they will ultimately come to bless the world. But he takes it one step further, because God promises to Jacob that he will be with Jacob. He will not leave Jacob. He, clo- he promises closeness and intimacy to a man that is totally and utterly alone. And Jacob is having this thin place moment where the two spaces overlap, where God is encountering him, speaking to him love and goodness and kindness and closeness in the midst of exile. Love that. A man far off experiences God close. And then Jacob wakes up to a new reality. Not, and remember, this isn't a conversion experience for Jacob. This is a, an experience that will set him off course because reality has shifted now to him. And he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not even aware of it. God is not far off, not abandoned, not removed. He's here. And God, or Jacob may have believed God existed, but now he believes God is close. There's an idea, uh, and this idea, sorry, is so important to the nature of Christianity. The imminent nature of God is vital to Christian faith. Because the Christian faith makes a wild and preposterous claim. It believes that God has not abandoned us. In the early church, uh, there was a heresy that often tried to enter in called deism, which is this belief that God made the world and then peaced out. He set up everything, he got the ball rolling, and then he left, and he said, you're all on your own. And I mean, I think that is also a common undercurrent in much of our own thinking in our culture today. If you believe in God, you might think he's there, but he's not close. He's off in heaven somewhere else, but this story is promising something else. God has not given up on us. He's not left us alone. He wants to be with us. And could it be that the invitation of this story is not to be like Jacob in his backstory, but instead to be like Jacob and learn to open our eyes, to realize that heaven is not far off, that God has not abandoned us, and that he's near heaven, is reaching down to us. We don't need to do all this work to get close to heaven. We can't build the staircase ourselves. We find it already resting on the side of the road. God's goodness is surprising. It will come up in the places you least expect, and our job is simply to come awake to it. The only major action that Jacob does is wake up. And we can embrace it to celebrate it and rejoice in it. And this is so contrary to a moralistic religion that teaches us that God's goodness comes to us based on what we do. 
Follow these rules, do these laws, say these prayers, read these books, go to these places, have silent retreats, all these things, and you'll get closer and closer and closer to God. Stairs on a staircase, but then we realize it's a treadmill and we're not going anywhere. The story of, God, of God's encounter with Jacob teaches us that we're completely wrong. There is nothing that we can do that will make us better suited to meet the surprising goodness of God. The scandal is that the stairs are coming down. I need to hear that. I need to hear that all the time. Because this story is so beautiful in its surprising presence. And it comes up again in a very interesting way in the New Testament. Early in the book of John, Jesus is out um, beginning to begin his ministry and gather disciples. And this very interesting moment happens. It says this, The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law, about, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip, the lover of horses. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, I shouldn't have said that. He said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael said. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. And then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you were under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is out gathering disciples, and he's introduced to this man, Nathaniel, and he speaks highly of them. You're, you're an Israelite of good repute. And Nathaniel responds, how do you know me? And then Jesus says just the wildest statement, I saw you under the fig tree. And I know in my last sermon I said that biblical writers intentionally omit things to like leave a clue for us, I read multiple commentaries. Nobody knows what happened under the fig tree. It's just this big mystery. They're like, something did. We don't know, but Jesus knows what happened under the fig tree. And it's so important to Nathaniel that he then responds, surely you are the son of God. And I mean, I really want to know what happened under the fig tree because that seems like a big reveal. But after that, then Jesus says, you'll see way greater things than that. You will see heaven open up and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Do you get it? Before the staircase rests on earth and angels ascend and descend. Jacob woke up and exclaimed, God was here and I didn't even know it. But what Jesus is saying is, I am the staircase. I am the link between heaven and earth. I am a walking thin place. He is a walking gate where heaven and earth meet. The surprising goodness of God is that heaven and earth don't simply meet in thin places that we need to go out and find. They meet in a person. And to encounter Jesus is to encounter God's present and surprising goodness. It is to encounter 
heaven. That's what Jesus is saying to Nathanael. I am the staircase. And that's incredible to me. Jesus takes on this whole metaphor in a whole new way. But so what do we do with stories like this? Because they could shape our mind and be like, that's cool. I like that. I like the way to think of it. But I want to leave us with a couple points that help us move forward with this. The first thing that we can learn to do is like Jacob, we can learn to exclaim, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. And like I said, God is showing up in surprising places, and it is not us working to achieve those encounters, but us working to wake up to those things that are already happening. And there are, of course, practices, contemplative prayer, charismatic experiences, meditation, reading the Bible, turning off your phone for a little bit, but I just want to give you something that has helped me greatly, and it's very simple. Look through your life and story with a discerning lens. The social reformer William Temple was once criticized by a group of non-Christians about his, his emphasis on prayer. And he had this just incredible line that I think has revolutionized my life for years. When I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. Can you prove prayer works? No. I hate to break it to you. Most of the time, you can't. But when you do pray, you'll begin to open yourselves up to seeing God's fingerprints through your life. And it takes an, a discerning lens and maybe conversation with people reflecting on the story of your, your life. But it can also be playful. I know I've already talked about Dungeons and Dragons, and I swear in my next sermon I'm going to try not to, but this one's too good. Because when Dee and I first moved to Vancouver, we had played D&D once. And I thought it was incredible. And I wanted to play again. And we're trying to find community here in Vancouver. We're trying to find a church, all these things. We've been church hopping. And then one day, we're, we're laying down doing our evening prayer. And he's like, is there anything you want to pray about? And I very childishly and, and foolishly said, I just want to find people to play D&D with God. Like, please bring someone to, to play with and, and have a friend. I, it's just a dumb, stupid prayer. I just threw it out, and, but I meant it. I wanted to play again. Two days later, we had gone to St. Pete's for the first time. We're like, this is where we want to go. We decided to go to a community group. We're in community group. We're having a good time. And this guy, Scott, that used to come to St. Pete's, we're chatting a little bit after, and just on his own, he goes, oh, have you seen the Dungeons & Dragons episode of Community? And I was like, yeah, that's like one of my favorite episodes. And he was like, oh, man, that's so good. Like, me and my roommate have been wanting to play D&D for a while. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I, I played once. I, I think I probably over-embellished that I knew what I was doing. But I was like, oh, I, I've played before. He's like, can you come teach me and my friend? And then my, my now friend, Amelia Hesketh, was also in the room. She's like, wait, are you guys playing Dungeons & Dragons? And I was like, apparently. And then we started this, this group, and we've been playing for five years now. Now, here's the thing. Was it my prayer that caused that? I don't know. But when I pray, I see coincidences happen. When I pray, I might see God's fingerprints in places I wouldn't expect. And we do need to be careful with this. We need to be discerning because I think we've all probably had that friend that's like, oh, you know, everything happens for a reason. And we're like, 
you're in a car accident and many other people are hurt and you're the only one that's protected. That's a difficult thing to say. So we need to be very discerning when we do this, but we can also look and wake up and say, surely God was here in my life and I didn't even know it. Slowly guiding me, opening up my mind, softening my heart, letting me see heaven in another person and making me come awake to it. And that's, of course, not the only way, but I think it's an interesting and playful way. Look at your story, your life. Where has God showed up? If you ever do spiritual direction, which I really recommend, one of the things the director will often say is, where have you seen God this week? And for the past number of years, I've struggled so much with that because I enter into this academic and intellectual, well, you know, I can't really attribute what is God and what's not. But then I just sometimes surrender to it and say, I saw him on an encounter on the bus when someone spoke something to me in the kindness of my wife, in the interaction with friends and community. I saw him on the sunrise as I rode my bike to work. And you begin seeing these surprising places where staircases descend and touch earth. The second part that we can come to encounter and wake up is this. Jesus is the staircase. And this is so important because it it means this story is not something far off, though 2,000 years ago, but we believe in Jesus' imminence, his presence. And so when we encounter Jesus, whether in prayer, in scripture, or in church, we are encountering a staircase to heaven. We're encountering God there. And so if you want to encounter God, well, look to Jesus, seek his presence, and there you will encounter staircases. And the final one, I love this. This line of of thinking, if Jesus is a staircase, means something implicit for anyone that calls themselves a Christian. In Christian faith, we believe that if you follow Jesus, you consider him your rabbi, your teacher, you become his apprentice, his follower, you accept him into your heart, whatever language that is, we believe something radical. We believe that in us, Jesus makes his home. The Apostle Paul writes it this way in Romans 3. He says, Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And you may have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is his love. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. Then you will be made fully complete in all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. In the Christian faith, we ex- if we accept him into our lives, Jesus lives in us, which means there is a staircase in you and I. We become places where heaven and earth meet. We carry that to everyone we encounter. And it means, do you want to encounter God? Encounter your community. Go to those you know Christ lives in, and there you will experience God. You will experience the staircase leading to God. God speaking over you in those beautiful moments. And I love that. And we simply need to come awake to it. How does that sound? Amazing. Before I pray, I want to read Romans 3, 17 one more time, because it just blew me away reading it. 
Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is his love. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. And then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Let's pray. (laughs) Father God, I give thanks that you are not far off, that you meet us in places of no importance, on the sides of on roads and in buses, in burning bushes and in the night. I give thanks that you are the God who is near. And I ask that we, as your church, become aware of your presence, your goodness and your grace in our lives. And that we, like Jesus, become people and places where heaven touches down and blesses those around us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.